Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure that we are prepared to study God's Word, prepared to uh, allow God's Word to work in our souls. This is done under the power of God the Holy Spirit, who is the one who enriches our spiritual life. He is the one who enables us to uh, understand the Word, to apply the Word, to remember the Word, and to, as we think about it, to see ways in which we should be applying the Word in our lives. The life of the believer in the church age is uniquely dependent upon the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. He is the one who energizes and empowers our walk with God, which is also referred to as simply being in fellowship with God, that uh, intimacy that the believer has experientially on a moment-by-moment basis. Scripture says that whenever we sin, that intimacy is Breached, but when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1 9 if necessary, which means simply to admit or acknowledge your sins in the privacy of your soul in silent prayer to the Lord. And at that point, we are restored to fellowship and our spiritual life goes forward. So let's bow our heads together. After a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, your word is that which you ordained to be the instrument by which we would come to know the truth of the gospel, the truth of who we are, the truth of what Jesus Christ did for us, and come to know you as we study your word, that you have given it to us in such a way that it demands study, it demands reflection, it demands thought. It is not something that uh, is like a systematic theology, it is not like a commentary, it is Uh, based in poetry, narrative, epistolary literature, as well as prophecy. And as we take the time to study, reflect, meditate upon what you have revealed, we, we grow, we develop in our understanding of who you are and who we are. And it is 
through your word that we are experientially sanctified or set apart, as Jesus stated in his prayer in John 17. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that we might put aside the distractions in our souls, the events that have caused us concern from the last week or the anticipation of events in the coming week, that we might put aside the various things that interfere in our thinking and that we might focus and concentrate on what God the Holy Spirit would teach us as we study your word this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as everyone knows, the last two and a half weeks or so, uh, I have been out of the country taking a group through uh, a study tour of both Turkey and then Israel. Of course, this is my uh, third trip to Israel, and some of the Turkey part, at least the Ephesus part, I have done before, but most of the other I had not done before. And so it was an interesting experience to go to Turkey, to go to Istanbul, and to spend six days in, uh, even though Turkey is a secular state, and that was reaffirmed by their Supreme Court while we were there, it is nevertheless a Islamic country. And so that uh, gave us some things to uh, think about, to uh, reflect upon, and to see just what had transpired there historically and come to learn a little bit more about that. Sometimes people ask, well, why, what's the significance of going on a trip like this, of going to places like uh, you know, Turkey or going to Israel? I mean, we have the Bible. Uh, what's so important about going to uh, the Holy Land? And a lot of times you'll hear people say, well, why is it called the Holy Land? And it's called the Holy Land for an extremely good reason, and it's been called that for a long time. It's because the word holy actually means set apart, and it's the only piece of real estate in the world that God has set apart and given to a particular people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it is properly called the Holy Land, not because the land itself has some mystical power, but because it is a unique piece of real estate that God has chosen and is the centerpiece of, of all of history. Ever since he first called out Abram in Genesis chapter 12 and promised to give him this particular piece of real estate. And so a trip to the lands of the Bible is not to be viewed as something that uh, gives us a certain mystical or spiritual empowerment, which is how some people uh, view this. There's always what they call the Jerusalem syndrome, where certain people get uh, overwhelmed and begin to think, go into all kinds of neurotic and psychotic experiences because of their presence in in Israel. But it is for us as believers in the Bible, those who are within the tradition of Protestant theology, we recognize that. Understanding history as history, we go there because these are the sites where historically the events of the Bible took place. And by going there and, and being on site, uh, we have a better understanding of the geography, spatial relationships, topography, all of these kinds of things, which gives us a better insight into the people 
to whom the Bible was written, the people who are involved in the Bible, the characters. And as you go to the different sites, you go to the these these archaeological sites where they're uncovering the uh, ancient cities and places, you get a feel for the culture at that time. It's part of uh, understanding the Bible in terms of the people and the times and the thinking in which it was uh, at the time in which it was written. And it's fascinating because you see certain similarities between our own culture and who we are in their times and their culture. You see certain differences as well, but there are certain uh, universals and certain realities that as you stop and reflect upon it, um, bring a few of these truths home to us. And so a trip of this nature is not just about history. It's not just about archaeology. It's not just about going and understanding just uh, sort of abstract cultural, historical, archaeological uh, facts, but all of that should be then taken within a biblical or divine viewpoint framework and then reflected upon so that it has an impact in our own spiritual life and our own understanding of how God works in history. Because for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the believer, the person who believes in the Bible as the Word of God, history has a unique significance. Unfortunately, today we're living in an environment in the 20th century, coming out of the 20th century, where history is often taught as simply a lot of random events and there's no uh, macro or universal uh, philosophy that ties events together. People often think history is very dull and very boring and uh, it's sad, but that's also how it's taught in many classrooms, junior high classrooms, high school classrooms, and it's just like a bunch of random events thrown out to people, and so it just seems dull and boring, and who cares about all those people in the past? I mean, we've got things going on today that we need to understand, uh, that we need to uh, pay more attention to, so why do we spend all this time thinking about history? Well, let's just reflect upon this a little bit. And I want to spend some time this morning talking about some of the things that um, I noted going through uh, going through Turkey and tying it back to the seven letters in Revelation, which was our goal in going to Turkey was to visit as many of those sites as possible. So let's just note three general principles related to uh, history and Christianity. First of all, the God of the Bible is the God who creates all things. He is the God who initiated history in Genesis 1. He supervises history. He directs history and controls history so that, though it almost has reached the level of a cliche, it is nevertheless true that history is his story. It is the outworking of the plans and the purposes of God. And so we see in history and in historical events the character of God, and we see in history how he works to bring about resolution to the problem of evil. 
And this ultimately is not resolved until he brings history to a conclusion. But within history, there are judgments upon nations for their sin and their evil. And so we see the ebb and flow of civilizations. And one of the things that impressed me as we were in Turkey was the realization that in the early part of the church age, the area in which we were traveling was the heart of biblical training. Ephesus was where Paul established a training school for pastors and missionaries and sent out students that took the gospel throughout the province that was known as Asia. Here we have a map showing uh, western, what is now western Turkey and the Roman province of Asia and the location of the seven churches of Revelation. Ephesus is the one, the star on the lower left-hand side. And it is from Ephesus that uh, Paul sent out missionaries throughout this area that planted churches that carried the gospel to the people at that time, and they had a rich impact. You can see... Uh, the location of modern Istanbul, which is ancient Constantinople or Byzantium, located up on the Bosphorus just in the southwest uh, corner of the Black Sea. Uh, Istanbul is actually a sort of a uh, synthesis of a Greek phrase, similar to a phrase we used to, in fact, I heard it this morning, uh, the, when the Carnes came back, they spent the night uh, in New York, and, uh, and Doug made the comment this morning that they left the airport and took a taxi into the city. Now, in Greek, the phrase into the city is Istanbul. See where it comes from? They were going to the city. It was the city. Uh, it was the new Rome uh, after uh, Constantine established it as the capital of the Roman Empire in the early 4th century. So that's where that term Istanbul comes from. It just simply means into the city. So this gives us our our general location, but this was the heartbeat of Christianity for two or three centuries. But today when you travel there, what you see dotting the landscape are Islamic mosques, and the people worshiping the false religion of Islam and the false god Allah. And there is little evidence of modern or contemporary biblical Christianity. So what has happened? Well, there was a judgment that came upon that area and upon the Christianity that deteriorated in that area, and the deterioration of the Christianity in that area is directly related to these seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation because they represented not only all the trends in all of Christianity, as we pointed out in our study of that, but they were also representative of Christianity in that particular area. So going back to our slide here, the second point we see is that only in the Bible... Only the Bible has an inseparable connection between historical, geographical events and key doctrines. You can look at all of the other world religions, and while there are one or two that attempt to have some sort of historical basis, they actually don't. In fact, if they pressed it very hard, they would be uh, laughed out of the room because their historical claims are just blatantly 
uh, fictitious. But the Bible isn't that way. The Bible grounds its doctrines in historical space-time events. Uh, and this is, uh, adds an element of, of veracity and validity to the Scriptures, such that, under point number three, the denial of the space-time reality of these key events, the fall, the flood, the call of Abraham, the exodus, the conquest, death and resurrection of Christ, on and on, if you deny the space-time historical geographical event, then the doctrine that is based on it is irrelevant. It's fictitious. The Bible sees history as a reality, not something that is just subject to anybody's uh, interpretation at any particular time. So the Bible and has a view of history, and it... Uh, shows that history is very, very uh, important. And one of the things that we note as we look at what has happened historically in this area of of the Roman province of Asia and just, in fact, Turkey and how it succumbed to the Islamic invasions and everything else, we should ask the question, what is it that caused the ultimate collapse of that civilization and what is it that called the, caused the collapse of the uh, impact, the destruction of the impact of Christianity in that time that they once had? Why is it that those churches failed? Because they all ultimately failed. And I think we can learn some lessons for today because in very similar ways, the Western civilization, Western Europe preceding the United States, but the United States following along behind, is is tracking in similar ways to what happened to Christianity in the Roman Empire. You go to North Africa, which was also a thriving church at one point, and now it is uh, has been overrun uh, by the Islamic hordes. And the same thing happened in Turkey. So we see this ongoing battle for since the 7th century, there has been a battle between the Christian West and the incursions of Islam. And it, we're living in a secular world today. We wish to turn a blind eye to that. The media wishes to ignore that. Many politicians wish to minimize and ignore it. But there is a, uh, there's a historical uh, reality here that if we ignore it, it will simply uh, lead to our doom. So we asked the question, what led to this collapse? And so I want to uh, direct your attention to one passage in the Gospel of John as a backdrop for understanding the core doctrinal issue that I wish to focus on this morning, and then we'll uh, do another uh, look at the seven churches in Revelation. John chapter 17. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. The context is the, has been the upper room discourse, and this prayer in John 17 is truly the Lord's Prayer, not the one typically cited as the Lord's Prayer, but this is our Lord praying for the church, praying for his apostles the night before he goes to the cross. And in that prayer, he says to the Father, I have given them your word. And we should pay attention to the 
importance, the centrality of, to, of Scripture and doctrine in his prayer. He says to the Father, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. Now, what does, do we mean by the world? And this phrase is used in a variety of ways, the earth itself, the inhabitants of the earth, a number of other ways, but in a particularly technical way, it refers to uh, the cultures of mankind that have sought to structure reality and define reality in a way that is in opposition to the Word of God. So there is this juxtaposition based on one letter between the Word and the world. And the Word tells us what God's truth is, defines reality, and the word world wants to set up an alternate reality that can put its, so the people in the world, the earth dwellers, can give themselves a rationale and justification for denying and suppressing uh, the truth of God. So Jesus prays, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. There will always be this battle between the truth of God and the relative truths of the world system. There's always that battle. And the trouble that the Christians, that the church falls into, is that they don't learn to think biblically so that they can counter the thought systems of the world system. Christianity is essentially a thought system. It's a relationship, but it's a relationship that is based on thinking about God's creation in terms of how God has defined it. That's living in a way that's consistent with reality. For God is the creator, is the one who defines reality and has revealed to us what that reality is. Man wants to come along and say, well, I think reality is such and so because that's my experience. So they want to base it on their experience, their observation, their limited knowledge as opposed to what God has revealed. So we see this antagonism between the word and the world. And Jesus says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. The world will always be antagonistic to those who take a stand for the word of God. And the trouble with most people, no matter what their culture is, is they don't like to be put in a minority position where everybody's antagonistic to them. So there is something within us that we want to be accepted, acceptable. We want to go along. We don't want to be thought of as odd, as strange, as... Uh, somehow religious fanatics or something of that nature. So there is something probably within our sin nature that wants us to accommodate the world system and to compromise with it so that we can go along and to get along. So Jesus prays that, he says, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. The Christians aren't from out from the world system. We have a different origin. Once you are regenerate, the Bible says that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then we are born again. There is a spiritual transaction that takes place where God... Uh, recreates a spiritual life within us because we are born spiritually dead because of the guilt of Adam's sin. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid the penalty for sin. When we trust in him, then at that instant, God the Holy Spirit regenerates us, makes us alive together in Christ. 
Scripture says that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So this means we are no longer in uh, or no longer of the world. We are the product of a different type of thinking. Now, Jesus then prays in verse 15, I do not ask you, Father, to take them out of the world. See, we're not supposed to go live in monasteries. We're not supposed to uh, go into ascetic forms of spirituality, which is one of the things that happened in the early church, especially in the eastern end of the Roman Empire. You have the early development of monasticism, the pillar saints. Uh, These were people like Simon Stylides, who would go sit on top of a pillar for five or six years, and people would come from, from you know, hundreds of miles away to come and watch them sit on top of this pillar and think that they were uh, very spiritual and close to God because they had given up everything. Uh, Jesus does, says that's not spirituality. He says, I haven't asked you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one, to keep us from the influence of Satan. Verse 16, they are not of the world, he prayed, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart. In the context, it's being set apart from the cosmic system that's around us. Cosmos is the Greek word translated world. We're to be set apart from the way of thinking that characterizes the world around us. We are a countercultural movement. So that the more you study the Word of God, the more your thinking, Romans 12:2, is conformed to the Word of God and you are transformed uh, by the Word of God and not conformed to the thinking of the world, we will be different. We are sanctified or set apart by means of the truth, which is the Word of God. He says, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy Word is truth. Verse 18, as you sent me into, into the world, I also have sent them into the world. We are to be set apart from the world in terms of our thinking, and then we are sent as missionaries into the world to communicate the gospel and the truth of God's word and to have an impact on the culture around us. But when we get out there, what has happened historically too often is that Christians, because of the lack of knowledge of the word, the lack of biblical training in how to think, then what happens is the thought forms of the world begin to dominate the thinking of believers and they begin to assimilate to the world so that before long there's no difference between uh, Christians and the world system around them. And you can just look around at different ecclesiastical or church movements that are taking place today, and you see that these movements that are so very, very popular and produce these megachurches, that in reality there's not a whole lot of difference between their methods and their thinking and that of the trends of the popular popular culture. And this has happened generation upon generation, civilization upon civilization, down through the church age, and we see... a we get to look at a case study of this in the seven churches in Revelation. So, let's take a little a look at this. As I reflected upon this, I was first place where it really hit me was as I was standing in the Hagia Sophia, which is the Hagia Sophia, the Hagia Sophia, the church in uh, that was built by Justinian in the early sixth century in Istanbul. 
And this was the seat, the capital of Christianity. It had become institutionalized by that time. But this was, this pictured the magnificence of Christianity, and in many ways it truly was at that time. Uh, doctrinally, they had had many tremendous victories and clarifications, and there were also already the seeds of destruction which had been sown. So like in every age uh, within the church, there were both uh, very good points and also some uh, very uh, wrong points and very sad things uh, that were going on uh, within the church. So how do we go from this period when you have the magnificence of this church built and now what you have covering the, uh, covering the beautiful mosaics that were put there uh, depicting events in the life of Christ, events in the Bible, covered by these ugly black discs. And a couple of pictures I'll show you, you can see them. I didn't uh, get focus on them as much as I wish I had now. But you see these huge black discs with this Arabic script on them, and the Arabic script will say Allah or Muhammad or some other uh, great Islamic leader, and they put these up, and behind them they're covering these various icons and mosaics that were that were in the church. So what led to the destruction of that somewhat Christian culture and its replacement by this ugly pagan culture? Well, to understand this, we have to have some understanding of some key events in history. We have to give a little framework, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but this will just orient you a little bit to events that occurred in the uh, 4th to 5th century to set things up for what, what comes. In 306, uh, Diocletian died. Diocletian had persecuted the church. He was, a, one of, he was a, an emperor in the pattern of Nero, and his sons, Maxentius and Constantine, become co-emperors. On October 28, 312, after a series of civil wars between Constantine and Maxentius to see who will be the emperor, at the Battle of Milvan Bridge, uh, Constantine, whose mother, Helena, was a believer, he was not at this point, and it's debated as to whether he actually ever became a believer. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. But he has a vision sees a cross in front of the sun and sees written in Latin the phrase, by this sign, conquer. So he decides to convert to Christianity, and the next day he defeats Maxentius in the Battle of Milvan Bridge and becomes the sole emperor of the uh, Roman Empire. A year later, in 313, the Edict of Milan, he legalizes Christianity and makes it the state religion which is good in the sense that it ends the persecution and allows the Christian church to sort of come out of hiding, as it were, and will provide the opportunity for the leaders of the church to begin to think more profoundly about the scriptures and to write and to uh, develop the theology and their understanding of the word in ways they never could when they were hiding, when in some cases the, the, the cream of uh, their young men are killed in persecutions. Now there's a chance for Christianity to flower. But the negative is that when you make, identify Christianity with the state, then you always have 
another uh, realm of problems, and so that was the negative of this. In 324, Constantine makes Byzantium the new capital. It is called the New Rome. And he moves the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome to Byzantium, which is later named after him and called Constantinople. In 325, he recognizes that there's division in his empire. He's trying to bring unity. The division is caused because these Christians are bickering over theology. And the issue is, who was Jesus before he came? Was he God or was he something less than God? And so this is the battle of Arianism. Arius was a, an Egyptian le- uh, church leader who taught that Christ was not eternal. And this is the same problem we have with Jehovah's Witnesses. And so the Council of Nicaea was called, and they resolved the problem by vote, uh, recognizing the truth of Scripture by a vote of 302, that Jesus was fully and eternally God and, and not a, a creature in any sense. In 378, at the Battle of Adrianople, western, the western part of the empire falls. Now, historians will differ as to just exactly when they decide Rome fell. This was a defeat, a military defeat that occurred uh, in 378. Adrianople actually is located uh, just a couple of hundred miles to the west of, of, uh, of Constantinople. Others will put the fall of Rome with the death of Theodosius in 395. In 406, uh, Germanic tribes cross the Rhine and invade Italy. Uh, the, there's uh, sack, the sack of Rome in 410, which is the first time in 800 years that Rome had fallen to a foreign enemy. Uh, others will put it with the death of Justinian I, who's the last Roman emperor. Of course, he's ruling from Constantinople. He's the last Roman empire, emperor who tried to reconquer the West in 565. And others will put the end of the uh, Western Empire, at least, with the coming of Islam in 632. So somewhere between the late 300s and 600, you have the recognition that the Western Empire is gone. But the Eastern Empire, which is Rome, still the Roman Empire, continues until Constantinople falls on May the 30th, 1453. So that continues for another thousand years. But by the time Istanbul falls... Everything else has been lost for centuries. It's just been this little pocket of resistance around around uh, Istanbul. At the same time that the West Western Empire is falling, you still have these very important theological councils going on in the East where they are coming to an understanding of what the Bible teaches about who Jesus Christ is and what he did. 381, there's the Council of Constantinople, which confirmed the Council of Nicaea, the uh, eternality of Jesus, also condemned the Apollinarius heresy, stating clearly that Christ was true humanity, that he wasn't part God and part man, but true humanity. 431, the Council of Ephesus, Nestorianism was condemned, Nestorius trying to explain the relationship of the humanity to the deity of Christ, basically ended up with a position that there were two natures and two persons. Remember, the the position they will come to is that there's one person and two natures, but they don't know how to articulate it yet, uh, even though they, they are all affirming the Bible. There's also the condemnation of Pelagianism. 
Those of you who took the History of Doctrine class on Monday night understand all this. If you don't, well, you can look these terms up later. 451, Council of Chalcedon finally comes to a very clear articulation of the hypostatic union that Jesus Christ is eternal deity in the incarnation his Undiminished deity takes on true humanity, and it is two natures united in one person, and that has been the clearly accepted orthodox position for almost everyone in Christendom, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Protestant. They all affirm these foundational councils that are called truly ecumenical councils. Remember, this time there's only, there's only one church. But what I want you to point, what, what I want you to notice here is at the same time that this is going on, the seeds are already being laid for the destruction, the impact of this vibrant church. There is, with the end of persecution, there's the rise of monasticism and monastic mysticism. Why? Because under persecution there was this aura of super spirituality for those who were martyred or who were persecuted. And, and I can understand that. I, I have stood in the presence of a couple of pastors in the former Soviet Union who were imprisoned and tortured uh, under the Soviet regime. And there is something about that where you think, you know, I've really had it easy. Look at what this guy's gone through. And he's taken his stand for, for the truth. And so you can see how people will uh, glorify those who have gone through that persecution and that suffering. But what do you do when there's no overt persecution anymore? What do you do when all of a sudden life now becomes easy? How do you reach this super spiritual status without the overt suffering? Well, now you have to impose it on yourself through uh, self-flagellation and asceticism and going out in the in the uh, desert and living off of uh, locusts and honey and all of these other kinds of things to try to uh, self you know have self-imposed uh, adversity and so you have the rise of monastic mysticism you have the beginnings of the worship of Mary at the council of Ephesus they affirmed that Mary was the ter- accepted the terminology that she was Theotokos, which meant the mother of God. Now, what they were really saying is that Jesus is God. And the debate was over she, whether she was Theotokos or Christotokos, the mother of God or the mother of Christ. Now, the correct expression would be she's the mother of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what they're affirming when they affirm that she is the mother of God is that Jesus is God. They're affirming the deity of Jesus in saying that, but that becomes you know, changed and abused in the coming centuries to where Mary herself begins to become glorified, and even though it's, it's many centuries before you have uh, the full development and uh, establishment of Mariolatry within the Roman Catholic Church. It has a history that begins in the 5th century, and so you have the rise of mysticism, you have the rise of the worship of Mary, the mother, which is basically the assimilation into, uh, West, into Christianity of a very ancient mother-child fertility 
concept, Isis and Osiris and uh, Sibley Addis and all these other mother-child cults, Tammuz, uh, that you had in the ancient Babylonian kingdom. And so uh, the MO that begins to impact uh, Christianity in the East and the West is that the way to become accepted by the world is to minimize the differences, maximize what you have in common, and to begin to just assimilate into Christianity the religious thinking, the thought forms of the culture around them. And this leads to uh, a complete failure. So in the early church, they're facing various, various failures. And let me see here, the early successes, they had evangelism, missions, and doctrinal clarity. We see this in, in the church at Ephesus, the letter to Ephesus, Ephesians 2, first part of Ephesians 2, the church at Smyrna, uh, Ephesians 2, 8 to 11, church of Philadelphia. Then there were also early warning signs in these uh, seven letters to seven churches, warnings of assimilation where they're accepting the pagan thought forms around them, uh, compromise and complacency. Some of these churches were very wealthy, so they became self-sufficient. They thought that their status, their wealth, their affluence uh, gave them their security. And then they, there was assimilation with worldliness. They accepted the doctrines of Balaam, the Nicolaitans. These, these were basically terms related to licentious religious systems that were opposed to Christianity, but they were so proud of their tolerance because they just accepted everybody. They would not say anything negative. See, we have that same mentality today. In fact, uh, one of the deacons was telling me this morning he saw something on television uh, commercial or talking about how important it is to be tolerant of everybody. And what that society meant and what our society means by toleration is no longer that we, no longer are we just going to sort of allow people to have differences of opinions and have a certain respect for their right to differ, but that we must affirm their sins and say they're, they're right. We can't say that they're wrong. And this is at the root of a lot of the hate speech, uh, thinking, politically correct thinking that goes on in our world today. Okay, this sets up our little bit of introduction. Now I want to just give you a little insight into what we saw when we were there. And I'm going to try to switch over to this, shift past a couple of these. There's, we've already looked at this. Okay, this is, we're going to start in Istanbul. This is what stands there today in what is known as the Sultan Ahmet Square, named after Sultan Ahmet, who reigned towards the end of the 1400s and early 1500s, and he is the one who was responsible for building this mosque, which is the, which is the Blue Mosque, and was built in the early, early 1500s. Now you see what happened to that church that existed in uh, Turkey at the time was that they began to fragment internally that, that and there were various failures and once Islam came on the scene, the Islamic conquest, conquest from 632 to 750, the Byzantine Empire lost their lands to the east and south of modern Turkey. 
But beginning by the late 600s, Islamic armies began to invade as far as the Adriatic and began to conquer some of these towns. And the reason they began to fall was because they had already fallen spiritually. And so God is bringing, I believe, this discipline upon uh, the Christian church at that time in light of their failure to respond to the warnings in the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3. So here we have just a picture of the Blue Mosque, and it is opposite. You just turn around 180 degrees, and you see the Hagia Sophia. This is the Hagia Sophia. It was uh, after uh, Sultan Mehmet II, called the Conqueror, conquered Istanbul. Within a week, he took his uh, favorite holy man into the Hagia Sophia, and he uh, read that Allah uh, is the only God and uh, read his Islamic prayers and converted it into a mosque at that point. And when you go inside, you see various things. They've turned it under Ataturk, who has secularized Turkey. They've turned it into a museum today. And you see that what this church once was, it was originally built during the time of Constantine and was one of the central churches in the eastern part of the empire. And this is a view of what uh, many think it was like, what the first Hagia Sophia was like. Hagia Sophia means the Church of the Holy Wisdom. Uh, here is a reconstruction of the second Hagia Sophia. And then today, it, I'm going to skip that picture. Today it looks uh, quite different on the inside. There are certain things that you see in the courtyard outside of the Hagia Sophia that indicate its Christian heritage, that have the marks of crosses and other Christian symbols showing what it once was. Inside you see these uh, tremendous mosaics, but they have been restored because the, uh, those, who, uh, have, those who follow the peaceful religion and who respect other religions as they claim are the ones who came in here and plastered over all of this so that uh, it w- would have been destroyed uh, if, uh, uh, if they had had their way. So they just plastered over everything, which probably preserved the mosaics, actually, somewhat ironically. And we see the, how the Byzantine church honors the Lord Jesus Christ and focuses on him. We also see certain aspects in these uh, mosaics, such as this one, which honors Mary, the beginning of the uh, uh, emphasis on the worship, or, or at least the honoring of Mary, uh, which begins during this, this uh, early time. So here we have a mosaic of Christ as the, uh, let me see, this is uh, Christ as the, uh, Autocrator, the uh, ultimate authority in the universe, the judge of the universe. Now, skipping ahead a little bit, as we look at this, we ask the question, well, what happened? What caused this tremendous, I'm trying to, yeah, there we go. What caused this shift? Well, to do that, as you go through the museums, you get a glimpse as to what the culture at the time of the early church was actually was actually like. And so I have some pictures here of um, 
from some of the museums of the different gods and goddesses and the worship at that time. This is a uh, part of a sarcophagus, and on this you see the uh, grapevines and the clusters of grapes, and this is honoring the god Dionysius. And what you realize is that when Paul took the gospel into western Turkey and into Greece, everywhere he went, he saw signs and pictures and depictions and idols and statues of just the rankest, most perverse form of paganism that's ever existed. But it's also within the structure of a very sophisticated culture. Their artwork is, is just among the most beautiful in the history of the world. But their worship, for example, in Dionysius' worship, Dionysius is a god that in his, the history of the development of the mythology, he comes out of Anatolia, which is an ancient name for central Turkey. He comes out of Anatolia. There's some connection between him and the fertility goddess Sibylle. He's the god of wine and drunkenness, and his uh, chief followers are the priestesses, the maenads, and the way to worship Dionysius and to become one with God and to have fellowship with God is to go out and get drunk and have an orgy. And the, the more you drink of the wine, the more the God of wine is then enabled to enter into you and to speak through you. And so there would also be uh, glossolalia, uh, something that's not tongues. It's the biblical gift of languages are just ecstatic utterances. So you have these depictions of Dionysius, uh, Zeus, who is the ruler of the gods, and, and uh, Hermes, and Aphrodite, and these uh, various other gods and goddesses, Artemis, and you have uh, Artemis the Huntress, as well as Artemis of the Ephesians, who's the fertility goddess. And here is one depiction of the mother goddess. And so there's this correlation also within the mythology between the mother goddess and also the uh, Mother Earth, Gaia. And we see this same paganism coming up within modern uh, environmentalism, the worship of nature, the glorification of nature, and the preservation of nature over against the needs of man. And so uh, the worship of nature, preservation of nature over against the needs of man is particularly felt today when you have politicians who don't want to drill offshore because it may hurt certain ecosystems, and we have the technology to do it without doing that, but they're operating on a belief that it's better for man not to have any impact on nature than to have an impact on nature, and that is totally counter to any kind of biblical theology on how man is to properly and responsibly, not abusively, Unfortunately, in the past, that has been the thought of some, but it's not not abusively use natural resources, but to use them. So this is just a modern, sophisticated version of the old uh, uh, nature cults that dominated in, in the ancient world. Here is a uh, depiction. Actually, this is a recovered statue of, of uh, Artemis of the Ephesians. She's the mother goddess. She's the many-breasted goddess, and her many breasts are represented by eggs. And so there were a couple of different statues of her that had been recovered that were in the various museums. You also had the emphasis on uh, worship of the emperors, uh, the worship of the Roman emperors as divine. And this is a statue, the head and the arm 
of Domitian, who was the emperor at the time, and who is the one who exiled the apostle John to the Isle of Patmos. And this was erected in Ephesus in a temple to uh, Domitian. And now it's in the uh, museum there at Ephesus, and you get some idea of the dimensions of the uh, statue that they had erected. But there was, and there was also an altar uh, to him that was there, and they would worship the emperor. You have uh, Kibbele or Sibylle, who is the uh, again the mother-child mother and the mother-child cult fertility goddess. This is another depiction of her. We have even another depiction of her. So all of this is seen again and again and again everywhere you turn in their particular culture. And it is into this culture that Paul and his disciples are taking the gospel. And it is in this culture that the Christians in the, at the end of the first century are having to live and have an impact. And when you read through the seven letters to the seven churches, they are being challenged, at least in in five of the seven letters, to change something about how they are relating to the world around them because they are in danger of destroying themselves spiritually because of their compromise, their complacency, and their assimilation to the culture around them. And even though today we are not uh, worshiping idols and statues and going to temples and leaving uh, various uh, offerings of flowers or animals or whatever to gods and goddesses in that way, we have intellectualized or abstracted these same realities and our culture around us is just as pagan and worshiping the same things. And whereas believers who come out of that culture, we have to understand that we too can fall prey to the same uh, devastating problem that the early church did by failing to make that clear distinction between our thinking and the thinking of the world. And this is why Christianity has such, such very little impact today in the culture around us, because for the last hundred years, the, 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 the church as a whole, evangelical Christianity, has compromised more and more with the world around us, so that now there's very little difference between the thinking of 99.9% of believers in this country and their unbelieving uh, counterpart. Anyway, this just gives you some of those pictures. Now, Ephesus was praised because they were doctrinally astute, but they were beginning to erode because in their, they had shifted to a focus on doctrine as opposed to what doctrine, doctrine is a means to. Doctrine isn't the end. Doctrine is the is the means to a to spiritual growth and a relationship with God. So they're challenged because they have lost their first love. They are, are weighing uh, the doctrinal credentials of those who claim to be apostles, but they've lost their first love. Now here is the entryway to uh, to Ephesus. There are temples there to. Uh, Caesar, to Domitian, as I pointed out earlier, to Artemis of the Ephesians, uh, to Dionysius, the theater. Most theaters were uh, dedicated to Dionysius. who uh, that, He's also the god of theater, the god of drama. Uh, Ephesus is an extremely wealthy city. They, within the remains, they've discovered multi-storied residences, 
some of the homes had uh, mosaic floors, marble walls. Two were found that had heated bathrooms. Most homes had running water. But uh, the moral status of the city left a lot to be desired. This is the uh, main uh, street going into Ephesus. This is looking over at some of the remains of the old, uh, you, you might call them uh, booze or stores. This is the old Galleria. This was the state agora, the state market of, uh, of Ephesus. And, and that's it in the background. And in the foreground here, that is the remains of the foundation for a temple to Isis, the Egyptian goddess. Again, the mother-child goddess cult, Isis and Osiris. Uh, this is overlooking the Library of Celsus, which is actually built in the second century, but in the foreground, you, we have the remains of the temple to Domitian. In the distant background, where you see this green area here, this used to be the harbor. Well, now, we're, now Ephesus is 12 miles from the harbor. The harbor silted in uh, back in the, by the fifth century. The city was virtually uh, abandoned. Uh, as you go to the... Uh, uh, Library of Celsus, let me see here, let's just, I'm going to skip some slides here. You see the various gods, this is to Asclepius, the god of healing, this is the goddess Nike, or Nike if you're, you know, wearing a shoe devoted to her, god of victory, this is Medusa, uh, these are various panels related to the founding of Ephesus, uh, but you also have some symbols related to Christianity. As you can see at the temple of, of uh, I mean, at the Library of Celsus, you have four statues in the front, and these are related to wisdom and knowledge and truth and virtue. This shows that they, that as unbelievers, they had a certain appreciation for learning, for knowledge, and for truth. But this is all within a relative pagan environment. You also have right across, right from behind me where I'm standing, taking that picture, I think I was standing in the local brothel at the time, and uh, everyone likes to point out that just outside the library there was this tunnel that was uncovered where the men could tell their wives, I'm going to go to the library and study for a while, and then they would hit the tunnel and come out in the middle of the brothel. So some things don't change a lot. Here are those statues. We have Sophia Wisdom, uh, Arete for Virtue, uh, Enoya for uh, Knowledge and Understanding, and Episteme for the Acquisition of Knowledge. And then here we have the remains of the Church of St. John, which is where the Council of Ephesus met in 431, where they were articulating the clarity of the uh, truthfulness of, of uh, the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. Here is the uh, great theater there, which is described in Acts, where they, the people were rioting because of Paul's teaching, was hurting the silversmith business because they were creating the little statues of Artemis of the Ephesians, so they had a town meeting and filled up this theater. Now, one of the people who normally shows up here at church when he's in town is Milton Bell, and we had a lot of fun with Milton on the trip. And one of the things that we could entitle this particular slide is, Where's Milton? You all know about Where's Waldo. Well, throughout the trip, we were wondering where Milton was, and he's there. So you just have to figure out where he is. 
Again, this is a Roman sarcophagus. You have uh, Nike and uh, Eros depicted upon the sarcophagus and various other things. Smyrna. I'm going to run through these kind of quickly. There's not much left of Smyrna. A couple of places have no remains whatsoever. There's been no digging. But this just shows the ancient uh, agora there and the various columns. It was quite magnificent in the marketplace. You see the uh, arches. This is where they would have uh, a variety of stores and markets. Uh, This is a picture of the clay terracotta uh, water system, drainage system that's been uncovered and some of the well. We have uh, that reed Smyrna, the Smyrna Agora there. And then up above is uh, Pagros, the mountain. And on top there is a a crusader castle that was built there, but this is often thought of as the crown of the city. And uh, there's a play on that with the fact that there's a warning to the church of Smyrna that they would be persecuted for 10 days. Many would give their their lives for the gospel, but the crown of life was reserved for them. So that's a play on this crown from the mountaintop. Uh, Pergamum, here's a depiction of what the city was like in the upper area. This is where the aristocracy lived. You have the temple to Trajan, who is after the New Testament period, but shows the influence of emperor worship in the uh, in that area. Here's another uh, depiction of that. Um, You can see it's on the highest point. That is the Trajan Temple up here on top, and we're just above one of the steepest theaters ever constructed in the ancient world there at Pergamum, and it was a lot of fun trying to walk down as we came out of there. To the lower right below the theater is a temple to Dionysius and also a great temple to Zeus. The temple is no longer there. It's now at the Pergamon Museum in Berlin, but this is an artist's reconstruction of it in this picture. Um, There also Asclepius. There was a temple to Asclepius. He's the god of healing, and he's indicated by serpents because in a temple to Asclepius, they would people would come in and lie down, and then they would release a bunch of snakes at night. And if the the idea was if the snake touched you, you were healed. If I was asleep, lying someplace in the dark, and a snake touched me, I'd be with Jesus. I'd die of a heart attack right away. By the way, that's uh, Jeremy Thomas, who's a pastor of Fredericksburg Bible Church. He had a good group that came along with us. Thyatira, there's an increase of divine good there, but it's coupled with a tolerance of licentiousness and a knowledge of the deep things of Satan. Now, we didn't go there because there are no archaeological remains. Sardis was completely condemned in Revelation 3, 1 through 6. They were wealthy, self-sufficient. They relied on their past achievements spiritually and now they were compromising with the world system. One thing that stands out there, you have some some symbols of Christianity, but there was also a very large Jewish community there, and they had a large synagogue. These are just some shots from the synagogue there, the mosaics, and various geometrical designs. There's also a gymnasium, uh, imperial gymnasium there in Sardis. But along with all of that, there was a, let me skip ahead, there is a temple Here's the uh, gymnasium, imperial gymnasium. But, and there's the old high, uh, Acropolis, the high city. But you had, let me skip over to it, you had the temple to Artemis, ubiquitous Artemis. So you just get a feel for how, and this is from 2nd, 3rd, 4th, it goes on with the 4th century. You just get a feel for how uh, 
uh, ubiquitous the paganism was throughout that particular particular area. Okay. Well, I have time. I want to skip. There's nothing in Philadelphia. You can just see it. It's over there somewhere. So as we drove, as I drove by, we said, "There's Philadelphia." Take a couple of pictures out the window, and that's just the modern city. And then uh, Laodicea. Laodicea was the lukewarm church. Apparently, they did pay attention to their warning, for the church had a good impact for uh, at least another five or six centuries. The site hasn't been fully excavated. Uh, but it's uh, interesting. Remember, this is the church that was accu- accused of being lukewarm. Jesus said, because you are neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you are lukewarm. And he, each of these letters plays on something historical, geographical that's in the context. And Laodicea didn't have its own water source. So they had to bring hot water in from Heropolis. And if you look at this picture, the white in the distance is not snow. That are, those are the calcium deposits from the hot water springs at Pamukula, modern Pamukula, which is ancient Heropolis. And so they would pipe in the hot water from Heropolis, and then they would get the fresh snowfall and cold water and uh, snow melt and springs from Colossi. They would pipe that in in this incredible uh, sis- water system that they had, and when the water finally reached Laodicea and mixed, it was just lukewarm. They didn't have either hot or cold water. Now, hot water is usable, and cold water is usable, but lukewarm water makes you bilious. And so that's the that's what the Lord is saying there: is you're just not usable because of your carnality. We saw evidence of some Christian symbols there. This is a cross on this particular rock. On this pillar, there was another cross that was carved there, and we got a couple of shots of that along with a menorah. And then we got some, also some pictures of the aqueduct system that brought the water from Heropolis and from Colossae. And we had to trek some through the high grass to get to some of these sites, but we came across this particular... Uh, stone artifact, which is really sort of the plumbing central for uh, Laodicea. And it has embedded in it, if you can see, terracotta pipes. Here's a length of one here. It's split in half. And here you have other pipes coming out here. And apparently this rock that was, was formed around all of these pipes, That this was the plumbing central where the water was mixed, and so I have several pictures here where you can see the terracotta pipes that are embedded within uh, this particular structure. So they, this is where it all mixed together and became the lukewarm water. Sort of gives you a little different perspective on what was going on. And now standing at that rock, as you look toward Colossae, you can see this, the remains of the old aqueduct here that brought the water from Colossae into Laodicea. Here's some of the other terracotta piping laying on the ground, remains of uh, uh, the arches with the aqueduct. And in this picture, it's a real hazy day. We had a, The only time we had any kind of drizzle or rain, you can see the mountains in the distance. Colossae was located near the base of those mountains, and that's where the cold water, uh, cold water source was. And at Heropolis, here is a depiction of what the ancient city was like. This was the ancient city here. This was the Agora in this area. 
the central theater here, and the white below is, even in the ancient world, you had the, uh, cal- the, the calcified remains from the, uh, from the hot water. So here's a couple of shots of the theater, some of the other remains. And here is, this is a magnificent site. If you've ever been to Mammoth Springs at Yellowstone, it's like that. But it's just an uh, incredible, uh, beautiful area. We got to walk around. Uh, people go there to swim in the hot water to get healed. And there's, notice there's no safety rails. There's no OSHA. There's no, uh, there's no boardwalk so you don't harm the environment. Um, this was in America. You can only see it in pictures, I think. But this gives you an idea, and here's a channel for the hot water. gives you an, somewhat of an idea of what this area looked like. So what's our conclusion? The conclusion is that civilizations that are not grounded on the absolute truth of God's word are going to fail. That God rules in history. And when a civilization or a nation has been true to God's word, when that nation begins to drift from God's word, God will bring discipline. And the only hope is a return to God's word. And we are reminded of Jonah. When Jonah took the gospel to Nineveh, God had said that if they did not respond, he would destroy Nineveh. They responded to his message of the truth of the gospel, and they survived for another, God gave them another 200 years. The only hope for this nation is not in politics. It's not in politicians. It's not even in, in, in policies or laws. It is in a return of the hearts of the people to God and to the truth of God's word. And if that does not happen, then we will go the same direction of every other nation in history. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things today, to be, uh, recognize the importance of history and how you have worked in history and how, as we come to understand history, it validates and confirms for us uh, the truth of your word. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins. When he was on the cross, he paid for every single sin you will ever commit. There's no sin that escaped his attention no sin that was too great for the grace of God, so that all you need for salvation is to believe that Jesus died on the cross for you. Father, we pray that you would challenge us that we learn the same lesson that the early church should have learned, that we need to make your word our priority, for it is only in your word that we have hope, certainty, and stability. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.